Good morning. It is still morning. Um, my name is Knut Rostad. I'm the president of the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard. Um, I want to thank Cato for being such a great host for this, for this event. And, um, and I hope that we have more to come in the future. Um, this morning, what, what we will do on this panel is to, is to delve down a bit in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the meaning and the differences between the two uh, standards, the fiduciary standard and the commercial sales standard, and talk about uh, the implications of that and, and where we are today. But to get started, I'm, I will do two things. First, I will introduce the panelists from, from my left to my right, and then I will make some brief opening observations and then I will let these outstanding panelists take it away from there. Um, we have a fantastic number of panelists this morning. And starting from my left, we have Harvey L. Pitt, Chief Executive Officer of the global business consulting firm Calorama Partners and its law firm affiliate Calorama Legal Services. Prior to funding the two Calorama firms, Mr. Pitt served as the 26th chairman of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. In that role from 2001 until 2003, Mr. Pitt was responsible, among other things, for overseeing the SEC's response to the market disruptions resulting from the terrorist attacks of 9-11, for creating the SEC's real-time enforcement program, and for leading the Commission's adaption, adoption of dozens of rules in response to the corporate and accounting crises generated by the excesses of the 1990s. On my immediate right, we have Marcus Stanley. Marcus is the policy director of Americans for Financial Reform. Americans for Financial Reform is a coalition of more than 250 national, state, and local groups who have come together to advocate for reform of the financial sector. Members of the AFR include consumer, labor, civil rights, investor, retiree, community faith-based, and business groups, along with prominent independent experts. Mr. Stanley has a PhD in the public policy from Harvard University and previously worked as an economic and policy advisor to Senator Barbara Boxer, as a senior economist at the US Joint Economic Committee, and as an assistant professor of economics at Case Western Reserve University. And then to my far right is Ron Rhodes. Dr. Rhodes is a professor of business at uh, Alfred State University in New York. There he is responsible for the financial planning program, its development and execution, among other things. Uh, Mr. Rhodes has been active in this issue for at least eight years. And uh, I think that if, if one were to go back over the last three years when this current discussion began again uh, and looked at the submissions to the Securities and Exchange Commission, I would hazard that Ron has delivered more opinion comments than any other individual or group, uh, uh, period. So he is very active in this space, as we say. Um, 
With that introduction, I'm going to make a, a few comments about uh, why I think this discussion is so vitally important. But we'll start off with just an introduction to the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard. It's an institute that was formed last year for the single purpose of advancing the fiduciary standard uh, as a nonprofit institute. Uh, the institute has identified six core principles that they're up on the board right here in terms of what does it mean to be a fiduciary. And at the core of what we are talking about today, uh, I think these six core principles do a pretty darn good job of um, explaining in non-legal terms what it is to be engaged with a fiduciary um, as a financial advisor. Um, what I, what I want to do is, um, is quickly go through some, as I say, some observations, um, touch on some points that I think are so critical for this discussion. Um, this morning, Mark mentioned the, the history of fiduciary law, and uh, he was absolutely right. It goes back, it goes back centuries. In fact, and this is not just because of my ancestry, but I am told that if you look at old Viking law, and this is not the Minnesota Vikings, you will see remnants of fiduciary thinking in terms of how they govern themselves. So uh, fiduciary law has a, has a long history. What also Mark didn't mention, I would say that if you go to uh, our founding fathers and you look at the fiduciary law or fiduciary principles in their thinking, it was obvious and, and clear that it was prominent to them, and I would suggest it is the, probably the branch of the law that is most represented in our Constitution that is something that very few people or nobody knows about. So, um, and so from an American law perspective, I think, it's, I think it's clear and present, and then most recently, as was also mentioned, the Supreme Court uh, identified the responsibility of investment advisors from the 40 Act as being fiduciary in nature. So it is clear as a part of our law. And I think that the, uh, another uh, observation is how important uh, it is relative to the options we have in front of us to, from a pure policy point of view. And from a pure policy point of view, if we look at what fiduciary duties mean, uh, on the one side, as opposed to what is currently required of broker-dealers on the other side, we see differences not in <coughs> degree, but differences in kind. And I think those differences in kind can be thought of in a very practical, down-to-earth uh, sense that, that uh, everybody can really appreciate in terms of thinking about the difference between your experience when you go into a department store looking for that sofa and love seat on the one hand versus your experience with your trusted medical advisor, trusted medical doctor on the other hand. When we approach the department store salesperson and, and saying that we're looking for a sofa and love seat, we know exactly what we're getting. We know that all of a sudden we're going to become this individual's BFF for this next 12 minutes, or it depends how long it takes to complete the transaction. 
and that, uh, that, is the, that is the nature of the relationship. This person could be very competent, this person will, is most certainly very nice, but um, it is a commercial sales transaction at its core, as opposed to the different, situ the different situation and feeling we have when we are dealing with a trusted doctor that we have, that we have uh, been dealing with for many years and truly, truly appreciate his or her expertise and experience. And, and in those worst situations, when we are sitting in his or her office and she or he is telling us about what we will have to do to help our child go through a recovery or go through uh, whatever medication because he or she has gone through a terrible accident, it is a different relationship. It is a different scenario. That individual is acting as a fiduciary in spirit, if not in letter, and there is a level of trust there that is very different from the opposing example that I just mentioned. The implications of, the, of, of these two different options in front of us uh, are, are clear and important. And I want to I specify when I talk about this, I talk about what is minimally required, both on the broker-dealer side and on the uh, fiduciary side. And, and in that same sense, I will say there are many brokers who go far above what is minimally required and many brokers who, in fact or in spirit, provide a fiduciary level of service. But at the same time, it's not required. So that's the context in which I'm, which I'm making these comparisons. And if you want to stand back and look at, look at sort of the, the, the key differences between those two, those two types of, uh, of service between a broker and an investment advisor, I would suggest you think of conflicts of interest. And I would suggest you think about the difference between one who is required to first try to avoid all conflicts, and then if he or she can't, then must manage them to Whose benefit? Not to the advisor's benefit, but, but to the benefit of, of, of the client on the one hand, as opposed, to a, as, as opposed to the broker's situation, where as a general rule, and there are some exceptions, there is, no, there is not the same requirement for disclosing conflicts. There is, there is not the same requirement for avoiding conflicts. So there is a, a, a significant difference. And, and in terms of the impact of that, uh, maybe maybe it's, uh, it's intuitive, but of course we have to have research to support it, and we do have research that suggests there's a close association between the, the, uh, the prevalence of conflicts and guess what? The expenses that are handed off to the investor, to the client. And of course those expenses go, um, go right against whatever, whatever, whatever <coughs> performance is there in the portfolio at the end of the year. So there's a concrete and significant difference between those two experiences. And then finally, I, I want to sort of look at that in the context of, and we talked about this in, in the prior panel, in terms of the significance for, in the broader picture of, 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 uh, of a fiduciary relationship as opposed to a commercial sales relationship. We talked about earlier in the, in the prior panel about the issue of trust, about the issue of confidence, and about the, uh, and, and, um, <clears throat> the importance of not overinflating investors to be overconfident. And I, and I think that is a, I think that is a, a very valid point. 
But I think there's another side to that as well, and that is without a certain level of confidence and trust in the economy, in the capital markets, uh, I think there's a very good case to suggest that uh, they, the, the economy simply will not operate at the same level uh, as it will, as it would if, if there was trust. That's trust that's based on conduct that is trustworthy and not trust that is based on the, the, the most recent advertising campaign or branding effort. So I think, so I think, that's, I think that's an important point to make. Um, and, then, and then finally, uh, the, the issue of investor perceptions and behavior and investor education. Uh, I think that however we go forward in terms of regulating investment advice, first and foremost, there needs to be a sober view of what we know that investors are able to do and what they're willing to do and what, and what the research suggests they simply are not. And the research here, I think, is overwhelming. Overwhelming suggesting that the knowledge gap on, on the basis on which fiduciary law uh, exists uh, is, uh, is, is huge, and that the in investor's uh, own behavior in terms of taking care of their own finances is, um, is uh, at least woefully inadequate. And to suggest for a moment well, I, well, let me put it a, a little bit of a different way. To presume for a moment that investors should do this or investors will do this or investors can do this uh, in a way that uh, simply goes against the, the research that's out there that suggests otherwise, uh, I don't think does this discussion very much good. I think we have to have a sober view of, what's real, of what is realistic. And in, in that context, look at the different options between uh, the fiduciary standard and a commercial sales standard. And then finally, and sort of in closing, I want to make two points. One is, uh, in the context of Congress, too often this becomes a left-right left political issue. Uh, the Ds are on one side, the Rs are on another side. Uh, I think that uh, we, could, we should try to get above and beyond that. And I think that properly understood, this issue is, is as nonpartisan as is our foreign policy that should be. And um, I, I think you only have to listen to or read some of the recent comments from, from those that are not exactly uh, representing the left-wing center of this country, be it George Will, or be it Peggy Noonan, or be it this last summer. I think one of the best examples is Charles Murray's piece in the Wall Street Journal when he talked about the blemishes on capitalism, and he puts the blame, the primary blame, where? at the feet of those on Wall Street who have forgotten something that our grandfathers and our fathers understood in a different way, I think, I think it'd be supported by the data, and that is, uh, as, as he phrased it, the, the uh, uh, coming to the point where there's no, no longer consideration of virtue in capitalism, and that that concept is gone. So I, so I think that, uh, if we stand back and we look at this from a, a broader perspective, perhaps, than just precisely how these uh, advisors should be regulated and getting, in the, and getting in the weeds and recognize that this is a far greater, larger issue that there's a, a considerable uh, concern about from, from all sides. And that with that, there's, there's opportunities, I think, to, to offer some, some solutions that have yet to be offered in the public domain. So on that point, 
I will, I will stop and um, hand, hand it over to, um, uh, to Ron. Yes. Thank you, Knut. One of the issues out of hundreds of rules that the SEC has to adopt uh, since Dodd-Frank was enacted is whether or not to extend fiduciary status that exists under the Advisors Act and the fiduciary standard that exists under that act to broker-dealers who are typically regulated by the 34 Act in the uh, FINRA, formerly the NASD. So I just want to keep this real simple. Brokers are fiduciaries. They always have been, and they always will be. Thank you. <laughs> Why do I say that? Well, brokers, when they take custody of assets, certainly have a fiduciary obligation to entrust those assets to their care, basic principle in agency law. But there's actually a lot of history that goes back before the 1940 Act was even adopted, and since then, that's, that tells us that brokers are and have been considered fiduciaries, not only by the SEC, but also mm -hmm. by the NASD. So let's take a couple of these comments. From 1963, the SEC did a very comprehensive report on the securities industry, and here's what they said. Where a relationship of trust and confidence has been developed between a broker-dealer and his customer, so that the customer relies on his advice, a fiduciary relationship exists. Now, I don't think the SEC was saying, well, if you don't rely on the advice, no fiduciary relationship exists. What they were saying is, if there is investment advice that is being provided by a broker, yes, the broker is fiduciary. Can we get a little bit more clear than that? NASD, which is now FINRA, in 1940, said it this way. Essentially, a broker or agent is a fiduciary, and he thus stands in a position of trust and confidence with respect to his customer or principal. He must, at all times, therefore, think and act like a fiduciary. He owes to his customer or principal complete obedience, complete loyalty, and the exercise of unbiased interest. The law will not permit a broker to put himself in a position where he can be influenced by any considerations other than those to act in the best interest of his customers. Here is the NASD in 1940 saying loud and clear, brokers are fiduciaries. Now to be fair, they contrasted this with a dealer. Basically said a dealer who sells his own securities is not a fiduciary. And when you act as a dealer, you have to make it extremely clear that that is your role. And you shouldn't be giving advice about the securities that you are selling if that is the case. So one of the questions I would ask is, why didn't FINRA two years later, 70 years ago, seven decades ago, when it first adopted its rules of conduct, adopt a fiduciary standard for brokers? And say, when you're giving advice as a broker, you're a fiduciary, plain and simple. And obviously, there's a lot of conflicts in the self-regulatory organization model. I think that conflict played out in 1942, and it's played out for seven decades since. So there is this false conception out there that all of a sudden we have to apply the fiduciary standard to brokers, and that brokers under the 34 Act are not fiduciaries. They have been. They always have been. And they always will be. And there are many state common law cases, the ones that leak out of the arbitration system and find their way into 
the, the law of journals, that find that brokers are, in fact, fiduciaries under state common law as well. So I would conclude first, I would first conclude with my first point that if you provide personalized investment advice, it doesn't matter how you regulate it. You are a fiduciary, period, and you always have been. Now, it's not enough to say, yes, you're a fiduciary. We then have to say, what does the fiduciary standard require? And in that context, really, we could probably summarize the fiduciary standard of conduct around three core principles. Uh, with deference to the Institute, I think the three cores are uh, the fiduciary duty of due care, which often is expressed as due diligence, although there are other aspects of that. The fiduciary duty of loyalty, sometimes expressed as the duty to act in someone's best interest, although there are other elements of that. And the duty of utmost good faith, which means to act with complete candor and honesty towards your client at all times. The most differentiating aspect of the fiduciary standard compared to a general duty of care that someone might know is that duty of loyalty. It is particularly how it deals with conflicts of interest. So this is what the fiduciary standard holds when you're presented with a conflict of interest. You have to disclose it. Uh, the fiduciary standard under the Advisors Act and under state common law is a best interest standard. It does not require avoidance of the conflicts of interest all the time, although at times the conflict of interest may be so great or so numerous that they should have been avoided. Otherwise, you really can't maintain a fiduciary relationship. This is unlike ERISA, which has a sole interest standard, which basically mandates that you avoid conflicts of interest in most cases. Uh, not only must you disclose the conflict of interest, but you must also ensure that the client understands it. The burden of understanding the disclosure, as the SEC staff report pointed out, is on the advisor. It is still to be judged objectively. What did the advisor do? What steps were taken to ensure client understanding? If you have someone who is having difficulty with understanding something, you need to explain it more. You need to spend more time with that client and the like. The purpose of disclosure and ensuring client understanding is the third step, is to get the informed consent of the client. And this begs the question, would a client ever consent to be harmed? I don't have any clients myself that like to make gratuitous transfers to me. <laughs> so no, clients are not going to consent to be harmed. And sometimes this shows up uh, as an expression of uh, the other requirement in, in the judicial decisions, which basically is, even after you do all that, uh, disclosure, ensure client understanding, the informed consent of the client, the transaction that is proposed must be substantively fair to the client. So it's not just disclosure, as some proponents of the fiduciary standard would like you to believe. Uh, the fiduciary standard goes much more beyond that. You put yourself in the shoes of the client, you become them, you become their representative, and you owe them your undivided loyalty. The third and last point I'd like to make, at least preliminary here, is that the fiduciary standard may be optional rulemaking for the SEC, but in my view, it is the most important view, the most important regulation that the SEC could adopt as if it extends it to broker-dealers and actually recognizes the fact that it already exists. Uh, individual investors in our society don't know who to trust. Every day I read more and more stories of the fact that people are not getting back into the markets. Uh, 
Is this because the market went down to some degree? But a lot of it's because of the huge mistrust that they have of Wall Street right now. And I hear more and more, and I see this in my students. And, and I talked to students that have said, when you started working and you're participating in your 401k plan, what are you going to be investing in? And they said, I'll never invest in stocks. I don't want to invest in bonds. I'm just going to put it in a safe money market account or CD or something like that. The problem is if we don't have trust in our system, we don't have investors, individual investors, participate in our capital markets. And if we don't have that, that's going to raise the cost of capital for corporations across the country. And to some degree, I believe it already has. And if you do that, that's going to result in reduced economic growth for our country. Higher cost of capital, corporations can't grow as fast, the economy can't grow as fast. A very good example of this, if you want to look back through history, is Greece. Uh, for a number of reasons related to their culture, but also the distrust of financial services institutions in general, Greeks will only put their hard-earned savings into banks, uh, commercial banks. Of course, now we kind of wonder whether that's safe. <laughs> but they typically will not invest their money in anything that relates to the, the securities exchange, either a stock or a bond or the like. And if you look back over the last 50 years of the economic growth of Greece, we see that most of it was driven not by capital formation, but by tourism. And that's one of the big problems that underlies Greece's economy at the present time. We don't need to go down a path where we're going to be the next Greece. Investors also need a lot of guidance to save for their retirement and their other needs. Now, um, if Americans don't make good decisions about how much they save, how much they put away, and make good investment decisions with that, controlling costs along the way, then they're not going to be adequately prepared for retirement. A study recently came out that said, of the people that are approaching retirement, 75% of workers approaching retirement have 30,000 or less in terms of savings. And of course, we know they don't have pensions anymore uh, with the demise of the pension system. So what's going to happen if we don't get to the point where we have people who are willing to go see financial and investment advisors and get trusted advice? We're going to continue to have people who are ill-prepared for retirement. And what's going to happen is government's going to have to pick up that burden somehow. And in the future, we know that governments are already going to be strained and they're going to be ill-equipped to do that. So the future outlook for retirees is not good. In other words, the fiduciary standard is so important, it is important to individual Americans, our fellow Americans. It is also important to the future economic prosperity of America itself. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, so I just wanted to start out by saying that we're, we're coming together to discuss this at a really interesting time in the, the history of, obviously, of financial markets and of the concept of, uh, of fiduciary duties, because I think that the, the financial crisis and the, the Dodd-Frank Act have led to a, a really pretty broad reconsideration of the question of what financial intermediaries, what the sell side owes to its customers. And we're seeing that play out across a lot of areas of, uh, of regulation here in Washington, including the relationship of municipalities to, to their brokers and underwriters. Uh, there's a reconsideration of fiduciary duties uh, for pension plans under ERISA for the first time in, uh, in three to four decades. Um, we see conflict of interest considerations in, in banking regulations now being examined in the, in the Volcker Rule. And of course, the topic that we're discussing today, 
uh, the duties of retail brokers to, to their customers. And of all of these topics, I think that the question of uh, the duties to retail clients are, are particularly pressing. And the reason for that is the, well, there are several reasons, but one critical reason is the rising complexity of retail financial products. Um, what we're seeing in the retail space, and we've been seeing this for, for quite a while, for the whole last decade, is the emergence of complex structured products that are basically the retail versions of the complex derivatives that we all came to know and love in uh, 2008 when they were plastered all over the front page of our, our paper, with the difference being that instead of these complex derivative products being sold to uh, you know, PhDs in physics working for some of the world's largest banks, uh, which didn't prevent them from blowing up in that case, they're being sold to grandma. And, uh, and grandma's risk assessment capacities, you, you know, wh whatever you may think of, of Lehman Brothers uh, and, and their risk management failure, uh, grandma and grandpa uh, probably have in inferior risk assessment capacities. And what's characteristic of these structured products is that the, the payoffs are tied to some, uh, they're, they're essentially contracts whose payoffs are tied often in very complicated ways uh, to some uh, third asset. They're derivative from the value of an asset or index that's being referenced in the contract. And uh, so you see asset-backed securities, you know, the, the payoffs being tied to uh, bundles of, of loan collateral uh, whose quality may not be well understood by the retail purchaser. You're seeing embedded derivatives that the product basically includes, say, a, a put option for the bank to sell some asset back to the, uh, to the retail investor at its market price in the future. <clears throat> You're seeing complex relationships with all kinds of reference assets. Um, there are, are some contracts that will be tied to uh, the highest of the, the highest level of a particular index on a set of selected days, maybe six days through the year. Um, you're seeing linkages to obscure markets or indexes. So if, if you wanted some kind of complex uh, asset that's tied to commodity prices in Brazil, you can probably uh, dig it up now. Um, and these, these kinds of products uh, provide really uh, an ideal vehicle uh, for sell-side insiders to take advantage of their superior knowledge uh, by offloading bad deals and bad bets on retail customers. If you're a bank and you know you have some, some lemons, uh, you know you have some bad collateral, well, you know, maybe you can tie a retail product to the performance of that collateral and you've essentially hedged your, the performance of that collateral that's on your books. And uh, we had some discussion in the, the earlier panel about government needing to document that there is an issue or there is a problem before taking action. Well, there's a whole academic cottage industry uh, you know, that's, that's devoted to tracking the performance of these retail structured products and proving in study after study that they do terribly uh, compared to just the market alpha. I think the, the consensus among these studies is that you're getting an alpha of something like negative 10% even before any brokerage fees that you might incur. And the complexities of these products, just determining you know, whether they perform well or badly, just determining whether they're going to perform well, 
I, I should have brought some of these academic papers because you could see six pages of solid math uh, devoted to trying to figure out what the correct pricing for these things should be. Um, and you can add to the, the growth of these structured products uh, the recent passage of the Jobs Act, uh, which is going to allow, you know, there's, there's still some debate about exactly how the SEC is going to implement that, but it seems clear that the Jobs Act is going to allow increased solicitation of retail investors for investments in things like hedge funds, in non-registered securities, uh, in private equity. And, you know, I, I have great uh, respect for the, the savvy and intelligence of, of Mitt Romney in making an enormous amount of money at, at Bain, but making, again, making grandma and grandpa uh, their own managers of, uh, of their own private equity fund uh, could potentially be, uh, be problematic. Uh, and there's, there's a lowering of the restrictions not only on investment in these kinds of, of instruments, but also on solicitation uh, for these kinds of instruments. So you can expect to see uh, a much broader range of investors targeted uh, for these kinds of investments that can be uh, very difficult to assess. Um, so the, the, the need to address this issue is becoming more and more pressing, I think. And investors do need help, but from whom are they going to get that help? And Ron talked a little bit about the, the confusion out there in the market. And the SEC staff study on uh, the implementation of Section 913, on the, the implementation of the fiduciary duty, contains really extensive documentation of the customer confusion regarding the duties that are owed by various different kinds of, of professionals. And when I say extensive, I mean not only thousands of comment letters, but you know several studies conducted by the RAND Corporation and others, uh, numerous focus groups. Um, that basically investors just don't know who owes what obligation. And uh, the blurring of titles, I, I think, uh, is one thing that contributes to this. People can go out there and I'm, I'm a financial consultant. Uh, you, you know, you can put a lot of different uh, kinds of titles on your business card that certainly uh, don't specify, I am a broker who owes you at most a suitability standard, um, unless I'm a broker who agrees with Ron's legal analysis and, and feels... Uh, so um, investors have to interpret this, this kind of advice on complex products uh, without knowing uh, who to trust. And I think that a really common sense um, uh, response to this, and actually the response that is endorsed by the, the SEC professional staff in the 913 study, is a uniform standard of care. Uh, and the, the investor confusion argues that we need some kind of uniform standard where, where people know what duty uh, financial professionals owe to them when giving advice or recommendation. So, and the nature of the investment challenges that, that uh, customers are facing right now uh, argues that we should level up to the higher fiduciary uh, standard of, of care for, for investment advisors. And indeed, there's, there's a common law tradition that 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 kind of fiduciary standard is, is already owed by, by brokers. And um, I, I think this is going to come out in the, the questions a lot, but there, there are issues raised about whether that standard uh, is adaptable to the broker-dealer business model, which includes, uh, you know, in some cases, recommendation and advice, but in some cases, just, just being a counterparty. And I think that the flexibility of the fiduciary standard, which we've already heard about in these, these two discussions so far, the fiduciary standard is principles-based. 
uh, it has a great deal of flexibility inherent in it, um, means that it can be adopted to the broker-dealer uh, standard, but that we, we have to make sure that that flexibility doesn't lead to watering down that standard, either by failing to draw a clear line around advice or, or, and recommendations, or by permitting uh, excessive conflicts of interest. And I think what one of the issues that's, that's been brought up a lot is whether a fiduciary standard is compatible with the compensation models that are used in, in the broker-dealer world, in particular uh, differential, um, differential, stand, uh, differential compensation based on what is sold, the selling of proprietary products. And I think there's no question that it is. Um, and we, we already see there's already a level fee model in, in the ERISA context, which has a much stronger fiduciary standard. Um, that allows differential compensation so long as that does not prejudice uh, what is recommended. And um, we're already seeing a lot of pressures around the regulatory world, even out of the SEC, to do this. The new suitability standard coming out of FINRA uh, requires advice to be consistent with the customer's best interests. So that's moving very close to moving closer to a fiduciary standard already. Um, we're seeing many legal precedents. Ron cited some of them, but they're still coming, saying that brokers owe a fiduciary standard. And indeed, the breach of fiduciary duty is already the largest category of complaints in FINRA arbitration cases against broker-dealers. So I think it's, it's past time for the SEC uh, to step up and match what's going on in these, these other areas. It's important for the market. It's important for... Uh, retail customers, and I think it's something that can be adopted to the broker-dealer business model. Thank you. A gracious good afternoon to all of you. Um, I thought it was interesting in listening to Ron, there was one case that was decided by Judge Leonard Hand in the Second Circuit in 1937. It's a very brief case. It deals with the obligation of um, a broker-dealer to supply information to the SEC when that information is the subject of subpoena and it was the customer of the brokerage firm that was suing to uh, ensure that um, his broker would actually provide the information. And Leonard Hand said in a very elegant sentence, broker-dealers are agents, therefore they're fiduciaries, period. Um, to me, um, that decision captures the um, essence of the approach here um, that I think should apply, which is a pragmatic perspective. Um, the real issue is what do people or customers legitimately think they are getting from the professionals who service them? Um, that makes it important to look at what happens in the marketplace and so even if a broker is not providing individualized investment recommendations, if customers can legitimately believe that the broker is looking out for their best interests, then I think 
that ought to be the standard namely that in the exercise of whatever the broker dealer does the broker dealer should take his or her customers best interests into account i think that many customers individuals don't understand the differences between suitability obligations the know your customer rule and fiduciary duties i think it's also clear that many lawyers don't know the differences i think even sophisticated investors can be sophisticated about companies in which they might invest or some of the complex instruments that have been referred to by marcus basically may be far less discerning about the presumption that the professional who's working with them and to whom they entrust their capital is putting their interests first seems to me that's a very simple concept we don't need a lot of regulation all we need is a clear understanding if you're a securities professional those are the standards as to whether a uniform standard should be applicable across the board i think that again a pragmatic approach should apply if a broker dealer does nothing more than execute trades directed by his or her customers that wouldn't seem to require the application of whatever is meant by a full blown fiduciary standard if a customer undertakes to make his or her own decisions about investments as many individuals do now that the access to securities trades has been promoted by the internet and computer facilities that shouldn't warrant the imposition of a fiduciary standard but if a customer does rely upon a professional to provide the traditional form of assistance and advice that's typical of most securities transactions then i think the law's done a poor job of conforming to marketplace realities and so to me the issue isn't whether we require a uniform standard the issue is whether reality comports with customers legitimate expectations dot frank perpetuated this fundamental problem because we regulate securities professionals not based on what they actually do but based on what they were born as and while that might have made some sense decades ago today the real issues it seems to me are what services is the professional providing what legitimate expectations can customers be said to have and how do we satisfy legitimate customer expectations without imposing unreasonable burdens on people who are merely servicing and facilitating transactions i think experience teaches us that prescriptive rules are the least effective way to establish an appropriate regulatory regime i don't think the people who drafted dot frank would agree with me since it took them 2213 or 313 pages rather uh to come up 
with a set of uh, basic statutory requirements that now are requiring hundreds and hundreds of rules by the agencies that they seem incapable of developing and certainly not in a timely manner. I think it's likely better simply to obligate broker-dealers, investment advisors, and financial analysts to act in the best interests of their customers. If securities professionals don't provide certain services, it should be possible clearly to exclude those services from a general requirement to act in a customer's best interest. Some people question whether certain services effectively can be carved out from a general obligation to act in a customer's best interests. But if customers are sophisticated enough to invest in our current securities markets, and if brokers avoid using boilerplate language, for example, simply saying, I've got a potential conflict with the recommendation I've made, and here's what it is, no one should be misled. Alternatively, professionals can make clear, I'm not going to provide any investment ideas to you. That's not what our relationship is. Or that can be our relationship, but only if you pay me and pay me more and pay me differently. Or if I am going to provide you with investment ideas, you should know that my firm markets its own investments, and I'm going to make a lot more money if I recommend those and some of the recommendations I'm about to make to you, and here they are, will reflect that. This is simple stuff. Those who question how forthcoming we can expect securities professionals to be, and there's a great, I digress here, 1941 movie that I recommend. Um, it's a Bob Hope movie, and it's called uh, nothing but the truth, and Bob Hope plays a securities broker who engages in a bet with his colleagues in a securities firm that he cannot avoid saying anything false for 24 hours. Um, it's an interesting movie. I recommend you look at it. But those who question how forthcoming we can expect securities professionals to be if they're paid on a commission basis are certainly right that there are always going to be people who look to cut corners. But that shouldn't dictate what proper standards are. That only means there has to be effective enforcement if and when people go off the reservation. And for those who are critical of my former agency, the SEC, I would just simply say, if you don't like the job the SEC has been doing of late, just think about the National Football League and how it would be if we had replacement regulators trying to enforce these standards. In any event, my core belief is that customers should be told essentially what they are and what they aren't being given, and that disclosure should be formulated clearly and unambiguously. And then we won't have to worry about coming up with these tens and hundreds of pages of rules, we can simply have 
a very effective and simple and understandable standard. Thank you. Thank you, Harvey. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Ron. Um, lots of food for thought. Uh, if you've got some immediate questions, uh, please uh, so signify. Uh, if not, I've got, a, I've got one to, uh, for Harvey, to, for starters. Anyway, um, Harvey, your, uh, your thought, re thoughts regarding customer expectations and dis clear disclosure, um, how, do you, how do you deal with what I think is a reality based on the research that uh, the notion of disclosure operating effectively in a trusted relationship is just fundamentally different than a commercial transaction. And very specifically, uh, I'm thinking of the work of Daly and Kane from Yale on disclosure effectiveness. And one of the points he makes is that how ineffective disclosures are in a medical situation, and that specifically when your doctor leans across the table and says, Mrs. Smith, you, you know, you need to know that if, I, that if you follow my recommendation and you, and you uh, follow this course of treatment, I get a $3,000 bonus from the, from the pharmaceutical company. And what is the result of that? Well, the result of it, he suggests from his research, is that Mrs. Smith says, wow, he's an honest guy. So, so uh, you know, uh, that really, that really ha brings me greater confidence in his judgment and his recommendation. I, I use that as a, as, a, as a sort of a suggestion of, you know, how, how is it that we can rely on disclosure today in 2012 you know, uh, you know, after there is so much data that suggests it is it is ineffective, um, as a, as opposed to you know when 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 the uh, when the securities laws were were made, as you know, we had one to two percent of the American population in the capital markets, and now we have fifty percent. So I think we've got a different dynamic going on. So anyway, I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, I I want to um, uh, just start by picking up your last point. We may have. 50% of American households invested in the markets, but um, we're getting a lot closer to the 1% to 2% level that we had initially, because most people today are invested in the market through intermediaries in any event. Um, so we don't have individual investors in the same way that we used to. We just have different types of institutions with different types of responsibilities and obligations. That doesn't make it any less concern because individuals um, entrust their life savings to professionals um, and expect to be treated fairly. Um, I look at those academic studies and I accept them for what they are, academic studies. I'm more interested in um, what the reality is um, of how somebody makes disclosure and what the disclosure means. So if I have five different instruments I can recommend to a customer, and I say that four of these, I get no additional compensation. I'm recommending the fifth one because I'm getting additional compensation. And you ought to know that um, that additional compensation um, helps me personally. And it does nothing for you. Now, tell me what you need to know about what I'm recommending. Ask me what you want to know 
about the other investments, and I'll answer all your question. I don't think one can look at this as a one-dimensional process. It's a two- or three-dimensional process. If I tell you I have a conflict, if my doctor tells me uh, he or she has a conflict, the next question is, okay, how does that affect your recommendation here? How is that affecting what you're recommending for my treatment? And are you telling me that notwithstanding that, that this is the best approach for how I should be treated? If I don't ask that question, and I must say in a doctor relationship, my life's experience is that most people are much more reluctant to question their doctors than they are to question their securities professionals. Um, frankly, I think one shouldn't be reluctant to question any professional. Somebody tells you something, you ask the question. I've acquired medical services and interviewed surgeons. I've interviewed seven surgeons for a single operation. And by the time I was done, I thought I could perform the surgery myself. I knew enough about it. I think people have to have some self-interest and have to ask some questions. But if they're not warned that there's at least a potential conflict, they may simply assume there's none. And that's the burden I want to get over. The rest, I think, is up to people to take care of themselves. And that is the way our system should operate. Thank you. Question. Uh, thank you. My name is Caleb Overgaard, and I'm an intern uh, for the center right now. Um, my question, my question is: uh, Isn't the uh, definition of duties something to be dealt with between the two contracting parties? And uh, if, if we talk about that in the sense of the advisors uh, or the dealers and, and the investor, we say that these people are coming together in a promissory agreement. They're moving towards an objective together. And uh, from my perspective, I'm, I'm wondering if that's where the definition of, of duties should take place, uh, even given the self-interest. If I'm in entering into a contract with someone, I want to make sure, you know, I know what I'm going to get, I know what he's or she's going to give me and, and whatnot. And, you know, in light of that, I was wondering if it wouldn't be more prudent to rather than, you know, binding the hands of innocent people, punish those who, who break that promissory agreement, who break contract, and kind of take a, a common law approach uh, in, in the sense that we would, uh, you know, punish people for educational, you know, to, to, you know, deter people from doing it and to give people retribution for breaking these contracts. But why bind the hands of innocent people by imposing statutory regulations uh, with the potential that definitions will change in another 20 years and, you know, there will be no financial advisor there will be some other word to describe, and then the statute becomes null and void. Uh, so I, I guess that's the, the thrust of my question. Thank you. Ron, you want to? Yeah, I'd like to respond to that in a couple ways. Uh, I think it's possible to define this, the, what you do during your relationship. Are you selling a product, or are you providing advice? And that's as simple as it gets. Are you selling a security, or are you providing advice as to whether that product or security is good for that person? Once you provide that advice, however, I think you should be a fiduciary at all times. Because 
If you are an informed consumer, when would you not want your advisor to recommend things in your best interest? You say, okay, it's, it's okay for you. You know, we'll have this negotiation that will take place. And I agree that you can promote your own self-interest solely and you don't have to worry about me. Any educated investor is going to insist on the fiduciary standard. And what happens is there is a contractual approach to fiduciary standards that arose about 20 years ago. Uh, Judge Easterbrook and some others promoted it. I think it's been refuted a lot in the more recent uh, legal literature for the very reason that fiduciary status is imposed as a result of what you do. It is imposed by law. It is possible to define the scope of your engagement. For example, you might say, I'm going to provide advice to you, but I'm not going to monitor your investment portfolio beyond this. That's defining the scope of the engagement. So I will get paid for the advice that I give you. But it's not possible to, by contract, waive fiduciary obligations completely. Because if that was the case, everyone would try to seek to waive fiduciary obligations, and informed consumers would never allow that to happen. One more point about that. I, I'm an investment advisor as well. I, I've been to many educational seminars on how to sell. How do I sell? Because the same educational seminars have been given not only to investment advisors but to brokers, and it's all about re establishing relationship of trust. And I can tell you that after two or three conferences with the clients, and I've established that relationship, I could sell them a dirty shirt off my back. Okay? Once they know, once they trust me, they're not going to look at disclosures. Why? They want me to read those disclosures. They, want, they, they trust me for that. They don't have the time. There's a lot of behavioral biases that come up in the academic literature to explain why they don't look at these disclosures and read them. And, and more or less, how can they understand them? I can sit with a client two or three times, and then I'll say, yes, okay, here's your portfolio, and we're going to have some stock mutual funds in it. And I'll say, that means I won't own any stock at all? They don't, still don't know the difference between a stock, a bond, and a mutual fund a lot of times. Even after two or three conferences, even after this, we have to recognize that the financial markets are extremely complex, that there is this huge informational asymmetry out there. And when you have that type of asymmetry, and it's not, getting, it's not going back to the 1930s and 40s when we just had stocks and bonds. As Marcus pointed out, it is much, much more complex nowadays, and the, the skill that's required to analyze securities is, is much, much higher. So given all of that, the notion that you can leave this up to the parties to contract, I think is naive at best. And it's certainly contrary to the historic history of fiduciary law, where it says, Fiduciary law is imposed upon the parties by law. There's even some SEC commentary about this. They say, we are not going to allow you to define yourself as a broker or a dealer by your uh, sales confirmations. We are, in fact, going to define it on basis of what you actually do. If you're giving advice, you're a fiduciary, plain and simple. Hi, my name is Philip Chow. I, um, I'm on the board with uh, Canute on the Institute for Fiduciary Standard. Uh, a follow-up question for, for Harvey, if I may. Um, uh, very much for the pragmatic and the practical application uh, rather than reams and reams of regulation. 
I think that's a fair statement for most people. Um, but, the, but the question is, not everybody's Harvey Pitt. Uh, in the sense, in the sense that they don't have the knowledge and this asymmetry, the complexity, the um, the difference um, in understanding investment and investing, uh, in, in two ways. One is that I, I don't think most broker or broker dealers today uh, will make that disclosure as simply as painlessly as the way you've done it. So perhaps uh, there is something to be learned about simplicity of disclosure and the requirement thereof. Uh, number two is this this intuitive notion to Harvey that we should ask questions. You know, just because somebody says this food is good doesn't necessarily mean it's good. But I don't think it's necessarily intuitive, if I may suggest, the 47% of America. So therein lies to me is what is the role of regulator in government? Uh, are we simply trying to be pragmatic and let the dogs run wild and just do whatever they want? Or are we really trying to protect those who cannot protect themselves or are not Harvey Pitts of the world, if I may suggest? So I, I appreciate you if you can probably ex- explore that angle a little bit for me. Yeah. Um, first, let me suggest I think it's a positive thing that not everybody is Harvey Pitt. <laughs> but I'll leave that subject for another, another time. Um, uh, I think the role of government, I want to start at the end, because I think that's the right question. I think the role of government is to define normative standards of conduct. You have an industry. You have complexity. How do you want this industry to operate? I don't think that government spends its time efficiently by coming up um, with these rules that just ramble and ramble. I mean, I, I, it's... Um, uh, a little bit facile, but when God wanted to set the rules for mankind, um, God was able to do it in Ten Commandments. Uh, the U.S. Congress, trying to set rules for the financial services industry, took 2,313 pages. Something is wrong there. There's a, there's, there's a lack of symmetry there. But I think government does have an obligation to set standards, and here's what you're supposed to do. And the standard should be you're supposed to have your customer's best interest in mind in what you do unless, and there I would say, if all you do um, is merely execute a transaction where it is clearly understood, you're not making any recommendation about the security, that it's the customer that's derived the idea, et cetera, you, you can define that and still do it in fairly simple terms, but government's responsibility is to set the normal, the normative standards of conduct. Once that's done, I think its obligation is to police that those standards are enforced. Anybody who crosses the line should get bashed, and bashed severely. I'm a big um, advocate for aggressive, effective enforcement of the rules that are on the books. Uh, because otherwise, people won't pay attention or they'll pick and choose what rules they want to um, follow. But in, in terms of complexity, um, if a subject is that complex and you don't understand it, um, you shouldn't be in uh, or you shouldn't be investing in anything remotely like that. 
people have to have some rudimentary training or knowledge. We do a very poor job of educating our citizens about investment, and I think we have a lot of work to do. I remember in seventh grade taking a class on banking, how you write a check, what happens to the check, what you can put on a check, what you can't. I had nothing related to securities um, at all with respect to that. And I think we have an obligation to educate our citizens. I'm all for that. But I think at some point, after people understand that they're supposed to ask questions, they're supposed to understand what it is they're being put into. And if they don't, it doesn't matter how honest their professional is. They shouldn't go anywhere near it. After that, I think we have a simple standard, which is act in your client's best interest, tell your client what you're doing, and if you don't do that, the government is going to get you. Good. Just one quick follow-up. In terms of the standard that you're talking about, would you agree in the context of a conflict of interest that that, that broker or advisor should also be held accountable for as we saw in the matter of Arlene Hughes, for, un for knowing that the client understands what he or she has agreed to, or is that not, is that not part of the advisor's responsibility? It, it can be um, in Arlene Hughes, and not to spend a lot of time on that, uh, the Court of Appeals decision is quite instructive in that because Arlene Hughes presented um, um, a host of her customers, all of whom said, we don't care that she traded out of her own uh, portfolio. We love this woman. She, we think she's great. And we don't care. And the SEC said, and I think correctly so, that's not going to cut it as to whether she meets our standards. It doesn't matter even if her customers agree. If she crosses a line of standards that apply industry-wide, we're going to put her out because we're looking at the entire universe of investors, and we don't want investment advisors or broker-dealers behaving that way. I'm all well and good with that as far as it goes. But if there's a consensual relationship as to the services that are being provided, and the broker lives up to those services, then it seems to me the complaint should be with the investor. The investor should say, why did I agree to this? Not, how can I sue the broker now that I realize that I should never have gotten into this investment because it lost money? Hi, I'm Al Scatman. I'm an intern at the U.S. Senate. And um, the question that I have is, um, I guess I don't understand all this discussion about um, why the complexity of these financial markets requires a greater degree of, of regulation than any other market for any other product. Uh, certainly, when you have financial institutions marketing products uh, to people who don't exactly know what they're getting, uh, I mean, I have no idea how my shoes were made, but I know whether or not they're comfortable. And people might not have any idea what's in uh, 
a financial product they're buying, but they know whether or not they lose money at the end. So I guess I don't understand why this should be treated differently than any other market, and I don't think you have the same necessity for regulation in, say, shoes. You, you, you put your finger on the exact distinction. I must say, um, this was my, uh, when, I, when my youngest was in eighth grade, I had to speak to her class about um, insider trading. And before I could do that, I had to explain what securities were to um, a class of eighth graders. The point is, if you try on a pair of shoes, you can tell whether they fit. If you want to invest in a company, you have no idea whether it fits because all you can do is read things about it. It's not like holding an iPhone in your hand or trying on a pair of shoes. This is what the Congress predecessors um, of today's Congress people said in 1933, that securities are intricate merchandise, and they are. So there has to be better disclosure about that. You can't simply verify things by trying them on. But that distinction, and that's why there is a distinction to answer your question, but that distinction gets blown out of proportion if now what we're saying is, um, okay, um, uh, people who have uh, no self-interest and who do nothing on their own when they are confronted with inquiry notice should nonetheless be protected from themselves. That's a philosophical line I won't cross. I think people have to take responsibility for themselves, but they shouldn't be at the mercy of professionals who are unscrupulous. And believe me, I can tell you, over my career, both in defending people and in regulating them, the unscrupulous behavior I've seen would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. I promise you, it's awful out there. People do terrible things. And those people should have the full force of law come smack down on them and quickly and forcefully. But that doesn't mean that we have to protect people against themselves if they've been given all the tools and they've been given the right to ask questions and so on, at some point, people have to assume responsibility for themselves. That's, that's the way I look at life. Yeah, I, I just wanna say that if, if we could replace the accredited investor standard with the Harvey Pitt investor standard, that that, that investor had the, the acumen and knowledge of Harvey Pitt, I would be in favor of a great deal of de deregulation for that uh, class of investors. Um, but but I, I think there, there's actually a lot of agreement, I think, uh, on this panel, and I wanted to address what Harvey's been saying about the complexity of a lot of these, these laws and, and rules. I think if there were genuine societal consensus on a clear, strong, principles-based fiduciary duty backed up by strong enforcement, then there could have been a, a lot fewer pages in the Dodd-Frank Act and a lot fewer pages in a, a lot of these SEC rules because a lot of that complexity is generated by the, the political battle that is waged, frankly, by the, the industry in terms of trying to roll back uh, both the, the scope and the extent of that clear uh, fiduciary duty. And you can really see in the FINRA, when, when FINRA writes up its suitability standards and its guidances, FINRA is more insulated from the political uh, process and from the, 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 
the D.C. Circuit and the lobbyists and so on, uh, their guidances are really fairly straightforward and and uh, and easy to read in many way in in many ways. Um, and the, the the final element of that, I think Harvey's absolutely right to emphasize enforcement. I mean, we've seen with some of the levels of fines and enforcement we saw after the financial crisis, you have to ask. What are the rules going to matter if we don't get out there and and put real penalties behind them? So, thank you. Hi, I'm Maria Lakshin with BNA. Um, I just have a question. Um, there's been a lot of talk how this is a pressing issue, and this is really to everybody. Um, the SEC put out the study about Section 913. Um, where is the SEC on the issue? Are they moving toward rulemaking? Are they backing off? The SEC uh, internally has a release that they would like to put out. It really asks for a lot of commentary relating to the economic analysis portion of the rulemaking that they might consider, and it asks a lot of questions. Uh, the problem is that that release is not going anywhere right now. Uh, only two of the five commissioners will agree to re issue that release. The other three, for various reasons, don't want to issue the release. So in all events, it looks stalled at least right now under the current makeup of the commission. I think there are some things coming down the road that could unstall it. Uh, for example, the uh, Department of Labor, if it comes out with its definition of fiduciary rulemaking at some point, uh, and they have uh, apparently undertaken a massive economic analysis of the fiduciary standard, uh, that that could uh, draw the SEC in, into the rulemaking uh, ability. Uh, obviously, another thing that could certainly affect uh, the SEC rulemaking is uh, the election and how that might change uh, the composition of the commission going forward. Thank you. One very short question. we got just a couple of minutes. I have to say, I, I am 
vehemently opposed to making law through ad hoc enforcement efforts. I think there often are claims that an enforcement action is breaking new ground when it isn't, but, but putting that to one side, um, I think people have to know what the rules of the road are. If they don't know what the rules of the road are, they're not gonna be able to conform, and if the first time they find out is when someone is sued, um, that's problematic. On the other hand, if the suit is simply um, what I would call a plain vanilla fraud, um, all of the belly aching about uh, those cases um, doesn't impress me at all. Um, Any one who's been in the industry who's worth their salt, lawyer, professional, business person, knows what constitutes fraudulent misbehavior. Um, what we're now worried about is whether we're going to come up with even more rarefied standards, more precise standards, that people aren't following because they had no notice. That isn't an effective way to get people to comply with the law. So I, I'm opposed to that. I would add just, just <clears throat> briefly a couple of comments on that. Uh, Dodd-Frank did not ask for a new uniform fiduciary standard for brokers and advisors. It said if you extend, if the SEC extends the fiduciary standard to broker-dealers by rulemaking, then it should apply the Investment Advisors Act standard, period. It recognized that there are some, some distinctions. And certainly there are certain business models that the broker-dealers have that are going to be challenged by this. As Marcus mentioned, there's a lot of instances of differential or variable compensation that occur. It is very difficult as a fiduciary to justify additional fees for a recommendation over and above the reasonable compensation you've already agreed to when all the research suggests that higher fees equals lower returns for investors. Uh, what, is, what the Wall Street is advocating is this new uniform fiduciary standard is not a fiduciary standard at all. If you take away uh, informed consent of the client, substantive fairness to the client of every recommendation and all the advice that is given, what you're left with is not a fiduciary standard at all. It's just disclosure. It's right out of the 33 Act and the 34 Act itself. It's not a true fiduciary standard. And if you'd like to read more on that, SIFMA uh, submitted a comment letter to the Department of Labor, I believe back in 2009, 2010. I submitted a reply to that, some 50 pages or so, that refuted, in my view, every argument that SIFMA advanced for some new uniform standard to apply when in fact it's not a uniform fiduciary standard at all. It's something much less. It's just mere disclosure, casual disclosure at that. Thank you. And, and uh, just, I'm, I'm, oh, we're really, okay. Um, Mark is getting very nervous back there. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm gonna ask 15 seconds. I think an additional reason why we're not seeing rule coming out of the SEC is because there's a fundamental difference between what the, what the securities industry is represented by SIFMA is advocating and what fiduciary advocates are advocating. And I would suggest that if you look at the six duties that we had up there on the screen before that represent what is required by Dodd-Frank when the Dodd-Frank bill says no less stringent 
than the Advisors Act. The basic problem is that what is being, what is being advocated by the securities industry doesn't meet that standard. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a huge problem. So um, Mark is standing there. He's getting a little nervous. Um, we're a couple minutes after. I want to thank everybody for coming. This was a great audience. I want to thank panelists for being here. And I want to thank most of all Cato for making this uh, co-venture possible. And uh, well, lunch is now being served in the, um, the second floor. There you go. Thank you.